As a family practitioner, one of my passions is the health of my adolescent patients. Obesity is all too prevalent among not only adults, but adolescents as well. And with this comes a concern about hypertension. I am your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and with me today is Dr. Julie Inglefinger, Deputy Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and Senior Consultant in Pediatric Nephrology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Inglefinger is the author of the article, The Child or Adolescent with Elevated Blood Pressure, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Inglefinger, welcome to ReachMD. I'm very happy to be here. We're going to start off talking about the article that you wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine uh, about pediatric hypertension. Can you talk to us about the prevalence of elevated blood pressure among children and adolescents? Can you share that with our listening audience? Certainly. We base prevalence on a number of surveys, and these go back to the fact that normative blood pressure data in children and adolescents is determined in different settings. In the United States, for example, our normative data were determined on the basis of more than 60,000 children, and this included information from the most recent working group update, and that added information from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey and Haines from 1999 to 2000. So we have norms for each year of age through age 17, and there are 50th percentile and then 90th, 95th, and so on, so that the definition of hypertension is based on those norms. What one would actually expect is that if everything were presently going according to what is thought to be normal, there would be an epidemiological prevalence. But in fact, what we are noting and what I think the practicing physician should consider is that as one gets multiple blood pressure, things tend to fall towards the mean. So in fact, although one might expect about two and a half percent of children to be seriously hypertensive, the number would over time with multiple measurements not be quite that high. But in fact, what we are seeing in a number of studies is that the percentage is now much higher and it has tracked with the obesity epidemic. For example, in a study that involved three blood pressure measurements in children in schools in Houston who were between ages 11 and 17, 19% of those children had an elevated blood pressure. Of that, 15, close to 16% had prehypertension, and 3.2% had frank hypertension. So that is really quite concerning. The number is going up, and that is true worldwide. You've done a great job of sort of outlining this issue for us. Let's talk about the level of the either family practitioner or the pediatrician, the generalist. Are we as practitioners doing an adequate job of diagnosing hypertension in children and adolescents? Well, let me go back and say what hypertension is, and then I'll talk about how good a job are we doing. Prehypertension is defined as a mean systolic or diastolic pressure that's at or above the 90th percentile, but is below the 95th percentile for the norms for age. And 
a blood pressure in an adolescent of 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury or more, even independent of pediatric norms, is defined as hypertension or at least prehypertension because when one looks at adult norms, a blood pressure over 120 over 80 is on the high side. We call stage one hypertension blood pressure between the 95th and 99th plus five millimeters of mercury and stage two is blood pressure that's above the 99th percentile plus five millimeters of mercury. A number of studies are showing that while pediatricians and family practitioners are measuring blood pressure in childhood, the majority are not recognizing high blood pressure when they see it. And what that means is that a number of children have recorded pressures, many, in the chart that are qualified as prehypertension or stage one hypertension, but nothing is done about it. It just sort of sits there in the record. So from that viewpoint, I think many practitioners are not sure what to do with these data. Thank you for defining hypertension, prehypertension, et cetera. We're sort of talking about this issue of how we diagnose it, uh, the issue in the practical state of when we see patients. What is the proper way to diagnose hypertension? How many readings do we need in our children and teens and adolescents? How should we be doing the readings to make sure that we get an, an adequate and proper diagnosis in the first place? There are standard ways to take blood pressure, and the pediatric working group on high blood pressure has in its 2004 report outlined how to do this, and it is to get a proper sized cuff, meaning that the inner bladder should go more than halfway around the arm, even two-thirds would be better, and that the cuff should go um, two-thirds of the way between the crease in the um, anterior of the elbow joint to the top of the humerus, and that one should get blood pressure in a seated position with the child as relaxed as possible and measure that blood pressure. The norms were all created with manual blood pressure cuffs, a sigma manometer and a stethoscope and listening. Manually measured blood pressure automatic devices have algorithms that are proprietary and they also have some artifacts in them so that an initial blood pressure on an automated blood pressure device may be high or sometimes may be low. And so to really diagnose hypertension, blood pressure should be taken manually and it should be the average of three readings. And unless blood pressure is so high as to constitute a medical urgency, one would see a child or teen back another time, or really two or three times, before putting the label hypertension on such a child. Let's talk about the differences between primary and secondary hypertension. Could you define those for our listeners and what potential causes there are for each? Certainly. Primary hypertension means blood pressure for which there is no known cause. It's also called essential hypertension. In the last couple of decades, a number of defined causes of hypertension have been found that were previously just considered essential hypertension because that is a sort of black box of we don't know what is essential hypertension. It's just 
hypertension without a defined cause. Secondary hypertension or hypertension where there's a known cause is related to some other underlying problem. For example, a coarctation of the aorta will cause elevated blood pressure in the upper extremities. For example, chronic kidney disease often is associated with hypertension that's related to the underlying disorder. And renal artery disease can cause hypertension, and there's a long list of underlying causes. Okay. All right. That's very helpful. You know, in your article, you mentioned that the evaluation of hypertension in children and adolescents is generally phased. Um, can you discuss the phase one evaluation uh, to identify or rule out causes of the secondary hypertension? Hypertension is phased because if we did every single test that is possible to do, the evaluation wouldn't be very thoughtful, and it could cost thousands and thousands of dollars. When one is faced with a child whose blood pressure is elevated, the first thing to do is to look for things that might have caused the blood pressure to go up and might focus one's evaluation. So it's very important to get a good history of what medications the child is on or any substance the child or teen might have taken that's known to increase blood pressure. One would ask about family history and other health history because somebody with chronic pyelonephritis has a reason to have elevated blood pressure as just one example. And then the second thing to do is a careful physical looking for systemic signs and markers of conditions that can cause secondary hypertension. Then in phase one of an evaluation, what one does is to do some simple things that might find the most common causes of secondary hypertension, and that would include getting a BUN and creatinine and electrolytes because the most common secondary cause of hypertension would be renal disease of some sort. It also would be useful to see the electrolytes to see if there are signs of hyperaldosteronism with a low potassium, for example. And one would do a CBC to see if the child had anemia suggesting chronic disease, particularly chronic kidney disease. Another couple of things one can do in the first phase is look at a uric acid because elevated uric acid has been associated with essential hypertension. Also, doing a urinalysis, looking to see if there's proteinuria or hematuria or formed elements under the microscope can be very helpful. And all of these are fairly straightforward tests that are done for many reasons, and they're not hugely expensive. After that, depending on what one suspects, it may be useful to do imaging to look at various hormones, such as hormones of the renin-angiotensin system, but this is the next phase and increases the cost, certainly, and pursues whether there's something specific. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I am your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and joining me today is Dr. Julie Inglefinger, and we are discussing elevated blood pressure in our adolescent and pediatric patients. 
Dr. Inglefinger, we're going to continue now with focusing on primary hypertension. You've done a wonderful summary of primary and secondary hypertension, not only that, but how we diagnose it in the office, what we need to look out for, and a, a preliminary workup. Let's go back to primary hypertension and focus specifically on that. You know, what would be our first steps for management of patients with primary hypertension who are pediatric and also discussing non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic therapies? Well, the first thing I'll say is that the younger the child and the more positive a family history, the more likely you are to find secondary hypertension. But especially with the obesity epidemic, most children in the second decade and most adolescents have primary hypertension often related to obesity. And so the approach really first is non-pharmacological and lifestyle change. This is not trivial to accomplish and really does involve enlisting the help of the family and sometimes others. But weight loss can be very helpful and also becoming more conditioned can be very helpful. We typically look at what a given youngster is doing in his or her life and make suggestions and involve nutritional counseling and exercise as a first approach. We only would go to using pharmacologic therapy if there's indication of end organ damage and indeed LVH and retinal changes can be seen in young people, but that is the second tier of things to do. A lot of people who have primary hypertension are salt sensitive, by which I mean they have a decrease in their blood pressure when the amount of sodium chloride in the diet is lowered, and that can be helpful, though also difficult to accomplish. What would be the follow-up? How often do you recommend that children with primary hypertension that, let's say, we're treating with non-pharmacological means, how often do they need to be followed and, and reevaluated in the office for their hypertension? I think that it's very helpful to monitor blood pressure, and there are several approaches to doing so. One can be getting ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and doing that on occasion, and that is now often covered by insurance, and gives round-the-clock blood pressure measurement. That, however, is an expense, and one might not want to do that. But it can be helpful to having the youngster and family follow the prescribed lifestyle changes to have blood pressure checked at home, and probably the most cost-effective thing is have the family get a blood pressure device and simply record blood pressures at time or have this done at school. I find that if youngsters don't have some measurement that's ongoing, since hypertension doesn't by itself cause signs or symptoms that a person perceives, it's good to have markers. How often should someone come into the office? Probably when it's first discovered, at least every two or three months. Some people would say more, some people would say less. And certainly as clinicians, we all need to be very concerned about cost. But what I'm really wanting to say here is if you tell someone your blood pressure's high, 
here are these dietary changes, here's some graded exercise to do. So since you've not been even walking 20 minutes a day, start with that and start with progressive increases in physical activity. And then you say, come back in four to six months, nothing is too likely to happen. So some way to check in in a cost-effective way can be very helpful in my view. It's very helpful. You know, as we wrap up our interview, we've talked about a number of issues with hypertension in children and adolescents. Do you have any final thoughts for our listening audience? Anything else you would like to add? I would add that one needs to weigh the guidelines of the task force and recent guidelines about what data we have to indicate that finding hypertension in childhood can reflect on or predict adult cardiovascular disease. Longitudinal data that do this, say you've got a 15-year-old with stage one hypertension, can you say, we know that if this is not treated at age 48, you're really at risk for a heart attack. We do not have those data. However, we do have data that many youngsters, even with prehypertension and certainly with stage one hypertension, have evidence of mild LVH to more than that of LVH, to eye changes, to cognitive changes, and those data are being gathered. So that my own view is that it is still wise to measure blood pressure because of the fact that we're finding youngsters in the adolescent age group who actually have changes and it makes sense to find those people and intervene, even if we do not have the data to say for sure what would happen at age 50. Well, that is very helpful. Thank you so much. We have come to the end of our discussion. Dr. Inglefinger, I really thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and you've been listening to ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.